Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners, uh, welcome back and thank you for joining us. I am, of course, I'm Vic. I'm here with Nancy. Hi, everyone. And uh, we are really stoked uh, today to be welcoming Adam Makos to the show. Adam, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, The Marine Corps is uh, pretty special. My grandfather was a Marine, and so getting to come on Scuttlebutt, it's a pretty big deal. The, this is the, the big deal is all on this end. So yeah. um, it's the big deal for us. Yeah, we will definitely get into um, <laughs> your your wonderful catalog of work. But um, I just want to say, I guess, starting off like devotion specifically, uh, it's just such a compelling story. And I think it really is, especially for this time in our, you know, in our present time, with everything we have going on that's so divisive, um, this story really is, uh, it really resonates, and I think it's very timeless. Um, so again, like, thank you so much for being on. This is really quite an honor. I think you're right that there's um, there's something about this story that the country really needs it now, and I always wondered why it wasn't told 70 years ago. I mean, this is, devotion is anchored in 1950. And the amazing thing is that Hollywood knew about this story back then because Tom Hudner, the one of the heroes we'll talk about, he was actually invited to a movie premiere of a film called The Hunters. And I want to say it was in the, the mid to late 50s. And Robert Mitchum was in that. And he played a character whose, real, whose heroics in the film mirrored what Tom Hudner did in real life. Uh, he crash lands an aircraft behind enemy lines and trying to save a friend. And I just remember when I was researching the book, seeing Hudner was on the red carpet, they invited him and they said, this is kind of based on you. But they didn't make it about him. They didn't make the true story. And I'm kind of thankful they didn't because I think that the world needs that true story now more than even back then. Yeah, That's a really absolutely. good point. Really good point. It, and I mean, I don't know how you could make a dramatized version of that any more incredible than the real story is, which which is phenomenal. And since, since we've already kind of jumped off the diving board into the deep end, let's let's just go ahead with can you you know can you tell us a little bit about Jesse Brown's story for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with it. Yeah, and it certainly deserves um, it deserves the context. The uh, devotion, you know, it was a book I released in 2015. I worked on it since 2007, and I can tell you how I found it. Um, but it was just this incredible story from military history that was untouched and overlooked for all those decades. And it's the story of two Navy fighter pilots who became friends in 1950 at a time when race was um, a major issue in this country. Jesse Brown was the son of a sharecropper. So he was uh, a black American from the fields of Mississippi and uh, he grew up dirt poor, but he had this crazy dream in the thirties and in the forties that he was gonna someday fly for the Navy at a time where there were no black Naval aviators. Tom Hudner, the other side of the coin came from the, the country club scene in New England. So he had everything laid out in front of him. He was supposed to go to Harvard. He was supposed to undertake the family business, which was a chain of grocery stores. Tom's whole life was planned out, and it was looking really good for him. So 
when these guys became wingmen, when they both joined the Navy, both became fighter pilots, it was a very unusual pairing. Um, but it was the perfect thing that I think the country needed. Jesse Brown was a one-man Tuskegee Airman, and how he got there is fascinating in its own right. But that's kind of the context. These guys go off to war in the Korean War as wingmen, and they find themselves, by a twist of fate, flying in one of the Marine Corps' most incredible battles of all, the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir. And it was a battle where suddenly air power was everything. You go into it really beautifully in the book, the Jesse Brown's story uh, growing up the son of a sharecropper and Tom Hudner's uh, life before he became a naval aviator. And those two men, like you said, could not have been more different except for a couple of things. They loved flying. They were great pilots. And they loved, they had great patriotism, um, which those were kind of the only common denominators needed. The, the color of their skin didn't matter to them. And you tell that story so beautifully in your book. What, what drew you? How did you find out about that story? And uh, can you talk a little bit about, about you know, deciding to write a book about it? Yes, I, and you're exactly right. Patriotism, we'll come back to that, was the thing that unified these, these two men. Uh, you know, I found the story in Washington, D.C. I was a young journalist. Uh, I was actually in college at the time when I attended an event up on Capitol Hill where Captain Tom Hudner was speaking. And he was addressing school kids and anybody who wanted to learn about the military. And I remember seeing him speak. I remember seeing something about him flying a Corsair. He was a Medal of Honor recipient. But I didn't have time to stop in. I was on my way somewhere else to another meeting or something. And then when it came time to go home from this event, I was in the lobby of the hotel, packing up my bags. And there was Hudner across the lobby, sitting there reading his newspaper. And he was completely anonymous. You know, everybody else was walking around him and, and nobody knew that a Medal of Honor recipient was sitting right there in our midst and one who had this incredible story in the Korean War. And so I, it was for me like seeing one of the Rolling Stones or one of the Beatles. I mean, it really took, it was a moment of, okay, I need to buck myself up here. I've got to like, do I do this or do I just walk out the door? And I said, I've got to try. And I approached him and I said, Captain Hudner, um, you know, I'm I'm looking to to tell a few good stories. I know you've told your story many times before, but would you tell it one more time for me? And then he looked up at me and he said, "Why, sure." And he he reached in his pocket, took out his business card, and handed it to me and said, "Call me anytime." And that's when I realized that even though Tom Hudner's story was as tough as nails, I mean, just what he did back in the Korean War was incredible. This man was a gentleman, and he was. Um, he was just a prince of a guy. And he, I later on learned one of the ways he looked at wearing the Medal of Honor was that they wore the Medal of Honor for everyone. He once told me, we wear this for every man and woman who served in the military. He didn't see it as something he earned and deserved. He saw it as, as a duty. And so when he gave me his business card and offered to tell his story for probably the thousandth time, he saw it as a duty. And uh, that started this incredible process. That was 2007. The movie came out in 2022. So this was a heck of a journey, multi, uh, more than a decade. 
And you only spend that long on a story if it's worth it. Wow. Wow. So, and, and that, that, I mean, that's talk about a sliding doors moment for you. If you had, if you had not made that bold move to go over and ask him, if you had just walked out the door, I mean, so many people still might be unaware of, of Jesse Brown and Tom Hudner's story. And like to kind of jump back to that. So Again, for those of us, those of our listeners who may not know the story yet, what what happened to, to Jesse and Tom when their lives intersected? So they were, again, men from different worlds, but they also were very different in the fighter squadron. Uh, their squadron was called VF-32. It was based out of Quonset Point, Rhode Island. And uh, Jesse was a married man. He had uh, a young wife. Uh, her name was Daisy. He had a two-year-old daughter, Pamela, and uh, a small little home there in Warwick, Rhode Island. And so Jesse would go home at the end of the day. Tom was a committed bachelor. He would stay at the, the, the base uh, bachelor officer's quarters. And he just, you know, he had his, he had his life and he was very solitary in a lot of ways. These men were bonded by professionalism. Uh, you know, they were in a career field where, you know, the tolerance is you don't make mistakes when you're landing on a carrier. Uh, you know, it was it was just something where anybody who's not at the top of their game can get you killed. And so they, they were bonded by that level of professionalism and they were bonded by patriotism. Like you said, the amazing thing to me about Jesse Brown showing patriotism is that this is a young man. He was at the time 23, turned 24 in the combat zone who wanted to fly and fight for a country that didn't necessarily love him back. I mean, if you think about it, this was someone who had to sit in the back of the bus if he was in the South, who had to drink from a different water fountain, who became the first naval aviator, first black naval aviator, through sheer persistence. The Navy didn't have a policy per se that said you can't be a black naval aviator. They just had flight instructors that just washed out everybody who came before. And so with Jesse, I think a lot of those flight instructors saw that this is a man who wants to fly and earnestly wants to fight for a country that doesn't love him back. And that kind of patriotism won them over. Jesse didn't want to be the first black airline pilot. He wanted to be a Corsair pilot. He wanted to be a carrier pilot. He was a Hellcat pilot first, then a Bearcat pilot, then a Corsair pilot. And he just, his love of America won over the people who, you know, kind of uh, you know, had something against him. And so that, that's an incredible thing, because when he went off to war, they sailed to war aboard the USS Leyte. And at one point, Jesse was interviewed by some um, it was a public affairs officer, but they were doing a story for Life magazine. And they asked him, has there been any instances of racism aboard the ship? Now, you have 3000 sailors on on that ship. Wouldn't you expect there to be something? Well, Jesse told them, not one instance. And it seems really remarkable. It seems almost like he was glossing over it. But when you talk to his squadron mates, they said, no, no. We were all one team going off to fight a big, bad enemy. And that enemy was really threatening America at the time. And people don't look at it that way. They look at the Korean War and they see the sort of localized war on the Korean Peninsula. The Korean War was, in a lot of ways, World War III. 
it was um, it was the allies of World War II turning against each other. And so what happened in Eastern Europe with the Soviets occupying Poland and, and Austria and, and Eastern Germany and, and basically trying to swallow up as much of Europe as they can. They were trying to move into Japan. They took over the northern part of Korea. You know, a lot of people don't know that the, the Russians drew up the battle plans for the Korean War, that North Korean officers went to Moscow and they received permission to kick off the war. They received the battle plans. They were armed by Russia. Stalin gave the green light for the war, just as the Russians had fueled the the Chinese revolution. And so there was a really bad actor on the world stage back then. It wasn't just Kim Il-sung and his dynasty. It was Joseph Stalin really pulling the strings in the Korean War. And so when this carrier is, is sailing off to war, they know they're fighting something bigger than just the Korean People's Army. This is, a, this is the showdown with the communists. And it had to be won because Japan was next in the crosshairs. The Philippines, Guam, all of everything we, we fought to save in World War II, the communists wanted. So they, the stakes were pretty high for this one. Like a little bit of deja vu all over again. Really scary. Well, Adam, I want to ask about that. I guess to, um, I guess to, to link those two up. So there's that period. So obviously, on the boat, there's a very clear sort of, you know, mono. I guess in a in a way, a monolithic entity. I know. I think hindsight being what it is, we see that the, in in certain AOs, it was it had its own nuances. But as they're on the boat sailing to take on this new emerging threat really on the heels of the last massive threat there's that unifying piece right like there is the communists so we'll all come together as a team and then we have that sort of common goal what was it like for jesse being part of vf32 post-world war ii pre-Korean War, where there were things were very ambiguous, both domestically and internationally. Um, how was it, was he immediately accepted into the, like, so except for, for Tom, was Tom just like, hey, he's my wingman and that's all that matters to me? Or was there still just like, oh, there's this, there's this black guy in the birthing area with this, like what's going on here? Like, well, is there much, um, in in historic in the historical references and, and archives that show sort of what was it like during his sort of maturation? Like we know the training obviously was out of control, but what was it like when he first got to the unit? So by that point, 1947, I, I believe was the year that um, Truman had desegregated the military. So officially, it was done. Uh, there were admirals and generals that just said, not under my watch. And so in particular commands, there was still segregation. It was actually the Korean War that really showed that we need to fully integrate the military. What happened was, and I'll, I'll go back to your point, Vic, when when the North Koreans came across the border and they're, they're threatening, they took Seoul, they're threatening to push this small American force off the peninsula, all the American troops are, are, are cornered at the Pusan perimeter. Suddenly, all black units were put on the line next to white units. 
So it's very different than even what you saw in World War II, where you didn't really see that, you know, you had black tank units in Europe and you had black units in the Pacific. But this was really, there's a black unit holding the line next to us. And the performance was so exemplary that right there in the summer of 1950, everybody started to think differently. And they said, we need to integrate. And by the end of the Korean War, it was a whole different situation. So Korea really is, World War II didn't really force the integration issue like Korea did. Korea was a real wake-up call. Um, Back to the squadron, when Jesse Brown joined it, there are stories that, for example, his wife, Daisy, would try to drive onto the base, and the gate guard would say, there is no way that you are an officer's wife. Just the idea of a black woman trying to go on the base saying her husband is an ensign you know, Jesse would have to come to the gate and say, yes, I am real, and she is my wife, and she's allowed here. She's not some spy or interloper. And so that kind of stuff happened. When Jesse was on leave, when he was back in the South, there was an uh, incredible incident where he uh, he attended the graduation of his old high school, and he wore his dress whites, and he spoke to the audience. And when he was leaving, he and Daisy were on the street corner in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, when a bunch of teenagers pulled up in a car and they saw him there and they were catcalling and making fun of him and they they peeled off and they came back with a dozen eggs and they threw the eggs at he and Daisy, literally pelted them as they stood there at the bus stop. Incidents like that happened, but that was in civilian life. Um, you know, when he was on the base with the squadron, it sounded like to me that those 20 men were pretty accepting of him. You know, this was New England. And so New England was not the deep South and there was sort of a cultural difference. And so maybe that was a blessing for Jesse Brown in hindsight, getting stationed way up North um, because at least they had a different attitude about it. There's also an amazing story that always, you know, it hits hard and it didn't make it into the movie, but when Jesse Brown went off to the Korean war, they stopped over in San Diego for one last shore leave and it was in the gaslight district there and uh he and the guys went for drinks at a particular hotel and the bartender came around to each of the pilots and he said what do you want jesse ordered his usual ginger ale and when the bartender came back he brought everybody's drink but jesse's and jesse had been through this before so he said okay i'm leaving and he he said i'm not going to ruin your night guys and he just up and left one of the pilots, um, his name was Dad Fowler, and he um, he was a World War II ace and one of the, the senior pilots. He went up to the bartender and he said, you're lucky I'm wearing this uniform right now and you're wearing yours because otherwise I'd tear this place apart. And all the pilots together stormed out of the bar and said, let's go find somewhere else. But this is California. This is wow. on the eve of battle 1950. And that was Jesse's last day in the United States. His last day at home, he was refused service, but his pilots stuck with him, his his friends. And so it, it's it's one of those things that, you know, when he stepped off the base, when he stepped off the ship, it was a different world. But I think I think the experience that the military showed, I mean, the military's always blazed the trail in terms of integration. It blazed the trail for civilian life. And in that case, these guys were ahead of their civilian peers. Jesse must have been tough as nails. And, and you know, I mean, have you, have you ever 
wondered, you know, what, what would Jesse's career have been like as a trailblazer had he not been killed in Korea? He probably would have would have been that, you know, that trailblazer throughout his entire career. And it's it's a tragedy. It really is a tragic story. He had a dream of being an architectural engineer after he left the Navy. Uh, he wanted to build the tallest skyscrapers in the South. He saw that the North had skyscrapers, the South didn't. And so he wanted to build some big buildings. That was his dream. But first he wanted to build a house for he and Daisy. And so there are these stories that aboard the ship, he would be sketching out their dream house, you know, in the quiet moments. And so he had small dreams, he had big dreams, and he absolutely had the inner toughness to go the distance. It, it was really interesting, though, because Jesse Brown was raised with great faith. So his mother, uh, she was a teacher and his father volunteered at the church. And so together they taught him the value of, of, of faith in people and faith in God. And that sort of teaches you to almost overlook humanity in a lot of ways, you know, kind of to forgive them for their flaws. And so he had that grounding. His mother also told him uh, that, that he needed to, to be as educated as possible. And she always was about the way he would carry himself and the way he would speak. She always taught him to, to say words the way they're spelled, to speak perfectly. And Jesse worked to eliminate his Southern accent. So he was this very upright, proper guy who probably had a better command of the English language than his peers. And so, so when he stepped into these unusual situations, he could, he could walk into a room and hold him, hold, you know, carry himself well and, and hold court with anybody. And yet he also had faith and belief in people, and he still had belief in this country. So he had this magical concoction of, of inner characteristics. And, and yes, a certain toughness. In the movie Devotion, they show him reciting words into a mirror. He, um, he's shown to be say, calling himself um, invectives, you know, racial right. invectives. In reality, he did that as a boy. And so it was really interesting because he was seen to speak into the mirror, calling himself the N-word and other words. You know, in the movie, it was to toughen himself up. But in real life, it was to desensitize himself. He realized that, you know, you could take a word that somebody calls at you and it can either hurt you or it can just slide off your shoulder. And in his case, he said it to himself so many times that those racial terms that that would hurt somebody else's. Uh, confidence or their feelings, it didn't bother him. He'd heard it all by then. And so he toughened himself up for the world to come. And when he left those sharecroppers fields, he used to actually go barefoot. And so when you say barefoot in the South in a sharecroppers field, it was actually true. Jesse and his brothers went barefoot because they were saving their shoes for Sunday. And so they only had one pair of shoes. You didn't want to wear them out back then. And so that's where he came from, literally from the dirt, but uh, incredible character. And then I think the military gave him wings to fly and, and it came back around because he saved a lot of guys' lives in the Korean War. And it's that's his ultimate legacy, a guy who rose above it all to defend his fellow Americans. And what do you think Tom Hudner's legacy is? Hmm. So Tom's legacy. Oh, gosh, he um, Tom. Tom was somebody who was close with Jesse and who grew from Jesse. So Tom 
as a, as I studied his story, I noticed one thing about Tom. He was he was a kind of quiet guy. He was he was a hero, but he was a hero who kind of flew below the radar and and was a rule follower. So Tom was the least likely guy to do this incredible thing he did on December 4th, which we could talk about. Tom was so straight-laced. He was Naval Academy. He uh, he had gone to prep school with George Bush. One of the reasons he actually joined the Navy was in prep school, he had a friend who played on the intramural football team with him, George Herbert Walker Bush, who went on to become the 41st president. And and George Bush left prep school and he went off to join the Navy. And Tom saw that and he said, I'm going to do the exact same thing. And so he applied to go to Annapolis before World War II was over, just missed the war. But he was this kind of blue blood, straight laced guy. And Watching Jesse as a trailblazer, I think he did come to realize, you know, you got to take some risks to get somewhere. And so when when this incredible event happened on December 4th, it was amazing that it was Tom who we could I guess we might as well tell what happened that day. But it was amazing. It was Tom because. He was so concerned about his career, he was so concerned about being the, the perfect naval officer, but at the same time, he admired his friend Jesse Brown so much that he did something that was kind of unthinkable for Tom Hudner. He broke his own rules. Yeah, so why don't you get into – I mean, I think you've told the story best before. So tell tell our listeners what what it is that happened on December 4th because – and like you said, it, it is miraculous, and, and uh, it was a pretty bold move by Tom Hudner to do what he did. And he it, rather than being honored – as a hero, he could have had his entire career taken away from him in that instant where he made that choice. Go ahead and tell us that that choice he made. What happened on December 4th had, had never happened before, and it has never happened since. Uh, so I'll, I'll predicate the story with that. It, the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir was raging, and the Navy pilots were flying in from the carriers off the coast to deliver close air support to the Marines. The one thing that the Chinese troops forgot when they came into Korea was anti-aircraft guns at that point. They didn't bring air support. They just brought human waves. And so when the Marines were surrounded at the Chosen, you know, they were outnumbered, you know, by various accounts, you know, eight to two, ten to one. Just depends how you group the Chinese troops. But it was an astronomical uh, numerical advantage that they had. But they didn't have air power. And so during daylight, the Marines could count on the the Corsairs, Marine squadrons and Navy squadrons just loitering over the battlefield, looking for targets of opportunity. And I've seen reports where particular squadrons have have logged 1,000 kills in a day, 2,000 kills. They were actually keeping kill counts of Chinese troops. Um, The North Koreans weren't fighting at the Chosen Reservoir. They were all Chinese communists so-called volunteers who had infiltrated the country over the previous 30 to 60 days. They were lying in wait, and then they triggered these dual ambushes on both sides of the of the peninsula, you know, one against the army forces on the western, western side of Korea, and then against the Marines and their army detachments in the east. And so it was just chaos. And back home, the newspapers were calling the Marines the Lost Legion. They were preparing the American public for the destruction of the 1st Marine Division. They didn't count on the fact that the air support would turn the tide. 
And so Tom and Jesse that day were supporting the Marines on December 4th when they knew going into this that there was one cardinal threat and that from the ground. And that was if you get 50 or 100 or 1,000 Chinese soldiers all aiming their rifles into the sky at the same time and shooting, that bullet can hit somebody. And that can bring you down just as quickly as um, as a 20 millimeter, you know, anti-aircraft gun. And so they knew this going into it. And they also were going into it with a unique mindset. See, during an earlier raid, a couple weeks earlier, against the Yalu River bridges, where the, the Navy planes tried to stop, tried to interdict the bridges that the Chinese were using to cross into Korea. They knew they were coming in. We had to hit these bridges on the Chinese-Korean border. And they knocked them down, but they didn't count on the fact that the river soon froze and the Chinese just used the ice. And so it was kind of a ferric victory. But during those missions, uh, a, a Sky Raider pilot was shot down and he crashed into a North Korean cornfield. And he was seen waving to the guys as they flew home. And they sent a rescue helicopter and it got there an hour later and he was gone. And his name was Roland Batson. And... For a few days, they sent back reconnaissance aircraft looking for Batson. What happened to this guy? And the pilots on the ship took it really hard because they had seen him waving. They had seen him in a cornfield. And somebody said, why didn't we just land and pick him up? It had been done in World War II. There's stories of P-38 pilots picking up their buddies, Mustang pilots in the European theater. There are SBD pilots who landed on Pacific Islands and picked up their buddies. And a Sky Raider had a cargo compartment that could accommodate several men if you needed to. Right. So there was this thought, why didn't anybody pick up Batson? And he was never seen again, missing in action to this day, likely, you know, likely killed on the spot. And the squadron skipper of VF-32 said to his pilots, if any of you think of doing that, I'll court-martial your ass. He said, that's a great way to lose two pilots and two planes. It's bad enough to lose one. We don't need to lose two. And so he had kind of laid down the rule weeks before December 4th. And that's when one of those bullets from the ground found Jesse Brown's aircraft. If it had hit the fuel tank, Jesse would have made it because it had enough fuel that he could have bled fuel and still made it back to the Marine base at Hagaruri or even to the coast. Instead, it hit the oil tank. And Jesse was 13 miles behind enemy lines, and the oil tank was just bleeding out really fast. And he was going down behind enemy lines while the Chosen Reservoir battle was raging. So the Marines had their hands full. I mean, the base is surrounded at this point, and everything from there is no man's land. And um, Jesse said, I'm going in. A lot of people have asked since the movie came out, why didn't he bail out? Well, when he was hit, they were doing road recon. They were looking for the enemy down in the weeds. And so there was really no opportunity to climb to two, three, four, five thousand feet, pop the canopy and try to get out. You know, that 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 Corsair's oil tank, I, I, I think it was about 40 gallons. And it was just, you know, it, the engine was overheating. It was a matter of you have 30 seconds, you have a minute, you have two minutes. And so just even bailing out was not in the equation. Hudner was his wingman that day, and Hudner spotted a clearing at, if I recall, about 11 o'clock, and he said, Jesse, I think you can steer for that. It was just a matter of, okay, let's do this. 
And so Jesse's moving toward this clearing in the mountains. It was actually a bowl-shaped valley. It was this incredible landscape where you have these rolling mountains, almost like the Appalachians. But on top of one of these mountains was a pasture, and probably at one time it was a prehistoric lake. And there was a little hut there where a Korean farmer probably kept his cows during the summertime. And Jesse went into this space, which was probably no more than a football field. And he crashed without power. His plane the lost and lost the engine right as it was coming in. And it fell like a rock. And what looked like a, a bed of snow was actually the rocky top of this mountain. And so the Corsair was a rugged aircraft built for the hardest landings. But even so, when you drop from, you know, 50 feet out of the sky and you're landing on sheer rock, it just yeah. tore that plane in half. So Jesse is now down behind enemy lines and he's not getting out of his aircraft. He probably broke his back in the crash and had internal injuries just from the power of that fall. And so the Corsair is, is bent at the nose. His buddies flying overhead can see this. They can see it's smoking. Um, the engine, some of the components were catching on fire and Jesse's not getting out. And that's when Hudner looked down on him and he's and he sees Jesse's not getting out. And he did something, like I said, that has never been done before, never been done since. He said, I'm going in. It was simply a matter of he wasn't going to watch his friend burn to death in this aircraft. And so in the movie, they had to accelerate things. And so it's like, OK, I'm going in. And everybody's like, OK, Tom, don't crash your plane and we'll call for a helicopter. In reality, the guys were dumbstruck. They were saying, does he really mean what we, he just said over the radio? And then they watched him crash land his Corsair. Tom brought in a perfectly good Corsair, and he crashed it on the mountainside next to Jesse Brown. Tom hit with power, so he was able to stall the aircraft properly. He was able to cushion the fall. And even though he hurt himself, he bruised his vertebrae. He was really hurt, and he was taken off flying status. He could still walk. And so he gets out and he finds himself, it's about 4 p.m., darkness is setting in, it's December 1950, and he's on a mountainside with Jesse Brown, and the enemy is just all around him. He actually said to himself, what am I doing here, when he got out of the Corsair? So there was this moment of, this is surreal. He made a carrier landing on the top of a North Korean mountain. He gets out and he goes to Jesse, and the first thing he does is shovel snow into the engine of this aircraft to put out the fire. It was a stubborn magnesium-fueled fire. There were magnesium components in the engine. And so he was able to stop the engine from engulfing, but he couldn't fully stop the fire. It was still smoking, but by that point, it wasn't something that was going to engulf the aircraft. After that, he went to Jesse's side and he said, okay, we need to find a way of getting you out of here. And, and that's what we see in the film, this incredible struggle to survive. And, you know, we can go through more of it if, you, if you'd like to go into the actual nitty gritty of, of what happened that day, or we can talk about the big picture. Well, um, we can go whichever way you like. I mean, I, I was compelled by this story. I mean, Adam, you and I have already talked about this. I first heard about Jesse Brown and Tom Hudner in 1993. I was just out of college working on my first job for a Naval Aviation History publication. And an article called The Jesse Brown Story had just run in the publication. 
And so the first issue I dealt with was letters to the editor, which included, if I'm not mistaken now, that was a long time ago, a letter from Daisy. Um, I'll have to go back and, and pull that letter out, but where she had said, thank you. And so, you know, I went, when I was dealing with these letters to the editor about that article, it compelled me to go back and read the article. And I, I was just really amazed by it, but, you know, put that, put that aside and decades went past and I really didn't think about Jesse Brown or Tom Hudner for years. Life went on. I left that job. And I think it was, was it 2017 that Tom Hudner died? Is that correct? Let's see. I met. Yeah, it, it was. It was yeah, it was 2017. Yeah. 2017. So I was at Arlington for the funeral of a friend and I saw on the marquee the listing for everybody who was being buried that day. And I saw the name Hudner and I thought, Hudner, I wonder if it's the same Hudner, you know, I read about all those years ago. So, you know, I don't, I guess I must have pulled out my, you know, my iPhone like Hudner and looked, looked it all up or, or it wasn't until I got back to the office later, I realized, yeah, that was Tom Hudner's funeral. And um, I, I mean, I hadn't thought about it in years. And so as I'm Googling, I see, I see your name. I see the book devotion. I hadn't even been aware that it existed until then. Immediately bought the book dove into it and, and just couldn't put it down because while I knew the story of that one, that one situation, I had no idea about those two men and, and you, you know, you told their stories so beautifully, what led them to, to that moment where their lives intersected. And um, I mean, we, we talk a lot on the podcast about stories and people having their own story, Marines mostly, you know, obviously this is scuttlebutt, having ownership of your own story and telling your own story. But what you do is different. You're telling someone else's story. You're sort of the conduit for them to tell you their story. And that's a huge responsibility. How, you know, how do you approach that? Being, being the, the, you know, the guardian of a person's story. Hmm. Nancy, it really is. It's a it's a sacred duty, really. And when I found Tom and Jesse's story, I was so amazed nobody had done it before. And I think it's because the Korean War is just not seen as World War II. It's not seen as uh, there's no romance of liberating a French village and getting a bottle of wine from the local girls. There's none of that. It's it was a war nobody wanted even back then. You know, it was on the heels of World War II, and and so it was. All it had for a legacy was MASH. You know, the last Korean War movie was, you know, it was Porkchop Hill with Gregory Peck and maybe Bridges of Toko Ri before that with William Holden. So pop culture had never embraced it, and America kind of just moved on. And and so it was a sacred duty to get this story. And, and to follow up with that, when Tom Hudner and Jesse Brown were having this incredible tragic moment on the mountainside where Tom was trying to pull Jesse out of the aircraft and Jesse was stuck. He was pinned by the leg. The instrument panel had basically pinned him in there and there was no getting him out. They pulled and they, and they tried everything. And Tom was just going out of his mind. He took, he had brought an extra hat. He carried a word cap with him. And so he put it on Jesse's head and he took the scarf from around his neck 
and he wrapped Jesse's hands in it. And he stood there at his side as his as darkness came, as it got colder, and as his friend was fading away. And there was this part that was really powerful where Tom, where Jesse looked to Tom and he said, Tom, just tell Daisy how much I love her. And those words were so powerful. And to Tom, all these years later, when I interviewed him about this, and when we talk about how sacred a story is, he said, Adam, there have been a lot of things said about Jesse and I in that moment. People have said, I, I was, we discussed cutting his leg off. He said, that's not true. He, he said, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't reach inside the cockpit. He said, you know, my boots were slipping on the metal. He said, the snow and the metal. He said, I couldn't get inside the cockpit of this thing. He said, if you've ever seen a Corsair, you have to put your feet in these various footholds to even reach the cockpit. It's perched so high. He said, I'm, I did everything I could to get him out. But over time, people have said, why didn't you cut his leg off? Why didn't you perform battlefield surgery? And so he was kind of dismayed that a story as simple as what happened takes on a life of its own over the decades. And um, he said, this is one thing you have to get right. Jesse's last words to me. Just, it was just tell Daisy how much I love her. And he said, please get that right. And so it is a sacred thing. And because you're talking about a young man dying on a mountainside and his last words to his wife and the look in his eyes. And, and, and you're talking about this, everything he had built slipping away. And, and it's your job to communicate that to people and to try to bring the emotion. And, and so Tom and I went back and went back to that moment into detail and he poured himself out one more time. And so it is sacred. You're holding the legacy of, of two great Americans in your hands. And to the credit of Glenn Powell, who played Tom Hudner in the movie, he called me from the movie set and he said, what was it? Uh, tell Daisy, I love her. Uh, or, you know, let's get this right. And so I said, it was just tell Daisy how much I love her. And so in the movie, Jesse's words are exactly true. And it's exactly what Tom asked me to do seven years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago, as we worked on this. And, and so it's a story that is so powerful. I was amazed it was forgotten at the time. That day, Tom failed. He couldn't save Jesse Brown. And when the helicopter came, it was a Marine chopper flown by a pilot named Charlie Ward. Charlie was an SBD pilot during World War II uh, who transitioned to the egg beaters. And he was one of these experimental her helicopter pilots. And uh, he actually knew Jesse Brown. They had been friends. They had gone to flight school together. And that day they tried to cut Jesse out. They had an ax. They were banging on this Corsair. But people forget a lot of times that a Corsair was made of, this is not a, this is not a tin can. This thing is a hardened aluminum. Dirty, very sturdy aircraft. Yes. Grumman, uh, this was Chance Vout. But, you know, the Grumman Ironworks were known for for building certain quality of aircraft. And they said, actually, a Navy Marine aircraft is built to, or was built to higher tolerances than an Air Force or an Army aircraft back then. So Tom tried to cut through this thing. They couldn't get him out. And Jesse slipped away before Charlie Ward said, Tom, you know, you're going to freeze to death if you stay here. That's when something amazing happened. Tom said to Jesse, to his motionless, you know, basically what was Jesse, he said, we'll come back for you somehow, some way. Tom thought that 
he was going to go back to Hagaru base that night, Hagaru Re, and maybe they would come back with a torch. He was kind of delusional. You know, I don't know if he knew the full state that the Marines were preparing to move out toward the sea, that, that we weren't going to stay here. And instead, he gets to Hagaruri and he finds out we're repositioning to Kodori, and then they're taking me home. He was thinking they were going to go back that night or the next morning or the next day or that we were going to win this battle. He never saw leaving Jesse Brown behind. And when I wrote that part in the book, I said, this is unusual. I've never heard in any of the other tellings, you said you were going to go back for him. And he said, yeah, I always wanted to my whole career. And that's when I asked him, this was 2013. I said, well, would you go back to him if we could go back to North Korea? Because guess what? Dennis Rodman had just gone to North Korea and we watched him hanging out with Kim Jong-un, watching oh. basketball games. And this was the kind of the amazing afterword of this story. Tom got the Medal of Honor. He went on to have an amazing career. He put Jesse Brown's widow through college himself. He stayed in touch with her his whole life. And his last act as a naval officer was to preside over the commissioning of the USS Jesse L. Brown. Uh, oh, a Navy, wow. A Navy frigate. And I think it was 1973. The Jesse Brown was later sold to Egypt. It's not sailing in the fleet anymore. But that was his last act. So it was a lifelong devotion that Tom showed. But the, but the last moment when I said to him, would you go back to North Korea? He said, of course. He said, but nobody gets to go there. We were able to pull some strings. We were able to find the people who brought Rodman back. We were able to pay a lot of money out. It was the idea of, can we do this? I don't want to say it was a camping trip, but it sort of was. We wanted to go to the Chosen Reservoir to be the first non-DPAA you know, JPAC team in there. And we wanted to go look for Jesse Brown ourselves as civilians. The North Koreans saw this as a public relations opportunity. A Medal of Honor recipient at age 88 is willing to come to our country to look for his old friend. And he's willing to bring all this American team and all this American money. And they're like, okay, let's do this. And so the North Koreans actually let us in we flew to Beijing, and Tom Hudner at age 88 goes back, and we're in Pyongyang. The trouble is, as we're flying into North Korea, we think we're going to go to the Chosen Reservoir. We're going to go to the crash site. We know the coordinates on the mountain. We're going to find some old farmer, and he's going to tell us where Jesse Brown's buried. And I need to, to, um, to kind of clarify, a lot of people think Jesse Brown's remains were destroyed. And even I thought back then that you know, the story was that the Navy sent a flight of Corsairs with napalm to incinerate or cremate Jesse Brown's remains. They didn't want the components of the Corsair, I think the IFF, the friend or foe identifier, to fall into enemy hands because the enemy could take that from the Corsair and use it to kamikaze a Navy carrier. So they wanted to, to destroy the remains of the aircraft and give their friend a warrior's funeral. What happened, though, was they had been using so much napalm at the Chosen Reservoir that they were out of napalm tanks. The drop tanks were gone. They had been using them for, you know, a week or so by then, and they just blew through it so fast that they said, okay, we're going to start using regular drop tanks, and we're going to put a little incendiary device on it. We're going to jury rig this thing. Well, don't you know when they dropped their napalm on Jesse Brown that day, it didn't go off. 
combination of the low temperatures on the mountain, the freezing sub-zero temperatures, bad design of these improvised drop tanks. And so Jesse Brown's remains were not incinerated. They dropped an iron bomb or two near the aircraft. But we had come to find out in the years since then, um, Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx, uh, himself a Marine yeah. in Vietnam, has spearheaded the effort to go back to find Jesse Brown. And, and he made a lot of these discoveries. And one of the great conclusions he came to was that, and we didn't know this going back in 2013, we thought, you know, we're going to just find maybe the remains of Jesse's airplane. Maybe we're going to find a wing or a wheel or, and we're going to find a grave with a little cross over it. That was our goal or a farmer who would direct us to it. Mr. Smith had discovered that Jesse Brown was likely buried in the bomb crater from one of these iron bombs that was dropped on his own aircraft and Hudner's aircraft. We think that the Navy pilots couldn't find the stomach to drop a bomb on their friend. They just couldn't bring themselves to blow Jesse into a thousand pieces. So they dropped the bombs nearby, but no direct hit. And so our thinking is the team has figured out that Jesse was probably taken out the following spring by a farmer and buried in the nearest shell hole. That's how it happens in Southeast Asia and Vietnam. A lot of these pilots have been buried in the crater, sometimes where their aircraft came down or a bomb crater. So we didn't know that back then, but we never got a chance to explore the theory because the monsoons hit when we were in North Korea. And talk about timing, how sometimes a story is not meant to come to the world until it's the right time. It was not the right time to find Jesse Brown for this reason or that. We couldn't get to the Chosen Reservoir. And we even were so crazy. We entertained them flying us in some old Soviet-era helicopters. We said, well, can you take us by helicopter? If the roads are washing out and we can't get there because everything's flooding and bridges are collapsing, take us by helicopter. We're like, yep, yeah, we'll get into one of those things. Like, stupidest thing you could do. That's and crazy. Yeah, and they said to us, they said, well, we would take you by helicopter, but the problem is we have an advanced team at the Chosen Reservoir and the landing pad has washed away and our teams are stranded there now. And we could see they weren't lying. We're watching the bridges get washed away. And so they said, you're our guest for the next 10 days. And so we just did the emissary thing. We went to the grave sites of their leaders. We went to their rallies. We went to everything and we experienced North Korea with the Korean People's Army, which was fascinating. Our hosts were North Korean Army. They were colonels, they were majors, they, they, were, they were officers of the, the bad guy side. And the thing that was amazing about it was we would have dinner together every night. And so we're eating this Korean barbecue, we're all cooking on the same hot plate, and it was amazing. I don't think we had a carb in the traditional sense for those two weeks we were there. I don't know, it was 10 days maybe. And it was amazing because you just started craving pizza and pasta and cake. And we're eating just cucumbers and kimchi and green peppers. We're eating healthy. We're losing weight. We're looking good. But we're craving the carbs. But every night we would drink soju with these guys. Did you know North Koreans have some of the best beer in the world? They make an incredible wheat beer. They make an incredible Hefeweizen. They have this great pure spring water from their mountains because it's not polluted by industrialization. And so they claim that we have the best beer in the world. 
And you know what? It was pretty incredible. But we're suddenly getting to know these guys, and we're starting to see that, you know, they don't really hate us. They don't understand us. They've grown up watching our movies. They, they all learned English from Gladiator and Titanic and Gone with the Wind. They're watching our movies to learn our culture and our language. And they want to come to America. And they actually asked us, they said, can we come golfing in Colorado with you? We want to come golfing. And I said, sure. I mean, of, of course, of course. And they said, trick question. We can't come to your country. You won't allow us. You allow the Chinese to come. You allow the Chinese to come do military maneuvers. This was a long time ago. And they said, you, you know, you interface with them, but you don't interface with us. You put up a wall to us. And they said, we actually have more in common with you than we do with China. They said, we're not ancestral enemies of yours. In fact, the North Koreans believe that we, our Native Americans, are descended from them. So they see the Wild West and they see themselves because they believe that North Korean people migrated across the, the ice bridge in the, you know, in the you know, 2000, 10,000, whatever years ago. And so they think they have commonality with us. So we were treated really well for those 10 days. And as long as you don't break rules, they don't, they don't lock you up. And Tom Hunter pulled off this amazing mission. He, he asked the North Koreans, all right, I have to go home now. I don't think I'll ever come back, but I need you to look for Jesse Brown for us. And they said, we have a message for you from Kim Jong-un. He said he admires you coming so far after so long for a friend, and he pledges the Korean People's Army will search for Jesse Brown. Amazing thing is we come home, we send a letter to the Secretary of State at the time, and we say, we want to come back, we want a JPAC member, we're going to go finish this mission. And they said, it's not the right time to be engaging with North Korea. And it all died then and there. So this idea of detente and we're going to just, we're going to starve them out. It hasn't happened for 70 years, but, you know, that was the policy. So we had to give up. We had to lose that one. But as I mentioned, um, Fred Smith and, and his team have, have discussed going back. And I think it's just a matter of when the politics of the world are right. We're going to go back and we're going to keep looking for Jesse because we pretty much know where he is. Wow. Wow. So, so let's, let's, um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the movie. And you've written a number of books. You've written four books total, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. Working on number so, five. Oh, oh, well, I can't wait to hear about that. So this was the first time, though, that one of your books was turned into a movie. What was that experience like? And, you know, can you talk a little bit about the movie? I I just saw it. Vic, I think you just saw it as well, too. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you guys um, got to see it on the big screen. Um, it's it's such a it's like winning the lottery to get a movie made. I never realized how hard it is. You need this combination of a great director, you need great talent, you need a story that speaks to one of five studios left in Hollywood. And then you really need something more than that. You need somebody willing to risk $90 million in the case of this movie. Who Whoa. is going to risk $90 million of their own dollars? I mean, if you asked me, would I risk $9,000 on my own movie? I probably wouldn't. 90000 would you risk 900000 would you risk $9 million? This thing was going to take $90 million to put it on screen. And that's where just this confluence of amazing events took place. So 
Glenn Powell was this young actor when he came to me in 2017. And he said, my family and I were just on a fishing trip. And it turned out my uncle was reading your book, Devotion. My dad was reading your book. And they were saying that I need to read this book because this is an amazing story. And sure enough, Glenn fell in love with the role of Captain Tom Hudner. And he came to me and he said, I want to make this into a movie. Now, Glenn was doing Netflix movies at the time. And you just, you say, well, that's nice. You know, you're an actor, but how are you going to do this? And he said, I've got ideas. I've got a plan. But mostly I have passion. And so I watched Glenn in this movie called Hidden Figures, where he played John Glenn. And he just was all American. He was sharp. He just, I'm like, this guy is worthy of my friend Tom Hudner. This guy can be Tom. Because Tom is just, anybody who's, who knew him just said, this is a prince of a guy. They don't make him like Tom Hudner. So I couldn't find just some Hollywood playboy to play my friend Tom Hudner. It could not just be some frivolous art school kid from the West Coast. So I decided to test Glenn, and I said, do you want to meet the real Tom Hudner? And if he had said, sure, you know, maybe later this year, uh, maybe if we get this thing going, it would have been dead on arrival. Instead, what Glenn said was, when and where? And I said, well, next weekend is Memorial Day. You know, are you around? He said, I'm in New York filming. He said, I get the weekend off. Let's go. And so next thing you know, five days after our first conversation, I'm on a plane going to Boston. Glenn is driving up. And we're all sitting down with Tom Hudner having waffles at his kitchen table while Tom's wife, Georgia, is cooking in the kitchen. And I'm getting to watch Glenn interact with him. I'm, Tom's telling him war stories. And there was a part where we went to go get our photos taken. And I went to the door to hold it open for Tom. And I looked back, and there was Glenn arm in arm with Tom walking through the hallway. He was steadying Tom to make sure he didn't fall. And Tom was wearing his Medal of Honor. It was an incredible little moment. I said, okay, we found our Tom Hudner. Ironically, in the film, when it did get made, something really neat happened. When they filmed the Medal of Honor scene, Tom Hudner's son, Tom III, brought the Medal of Honor to the set. And so when Tom is awarded the Medal of Honor by Truman in the movie, they're actually fastening Tom Hudner's real Medal of Honor around his neck. And it was the Medal of Honor that Tom was wearing that day when, when he and Glenn walked down the hallway. So life kind of can come full circle. When I went back with Glenn, we had, a, we had a dinner that night, and I said to him, you've got the job. How do we get this movie made? He said, well, I know this family, the Smith family. Rachel and Molly are great producers in Hollywood, and their dad founded FedEx. And he was a Marine Rifle Company leader in Vietnam. He did two tours. Yeah. And just this incredible storied history. And Glenn said, let's bring it to them. That's the rest is history. Wow. Uh, they, they went where no one else would for all those decades. And they, they gave the world the first Korean War movie. And that's what I'm so proud of is that we put the Korean War back on the map. We put a face to it that is not MASH. You know, right. it's not a joke. It's not filmed in Southern California. And so in, oh gosh, what year did we film it? Oh, it must have been uh, during the pandemic. It must have been 2020. They went and they built an aircraft carrier on an airfield in Georgia to make this movie. They went around to the various carriers in the country and they realized we can't fly Corsairs off of these things. They're all anchored no. in New York City or right. uh, Galveston and, or, or I'm sorry, Corpus Christi and Oakland. So they said, we're going to build a carrier. 
that was their commitment to this project. And what they did was they built the entire superstructure of an aircraft carrier on a, a seldom used airfield in Statesboro, Georgia. They got four real Corsairs together and they brought them to the set. And so I walk out there as the author of the book and I get to make a little cameo. So, you know, it's pre-dawn and you, you go out to the set and you put on a Navy G1 jacket. And the next thing you, you see as the sun rises is, is an aircraft carrier in the middle of a field. And all these Corsairs are taxiing back and forth. And you walk up and you pound on the, the first thing you do is you wrap on the superstructure and it's faced with metal. And it's got the watertight doors and it's got the glass, and it's got the gun tubs. And they actually built this thing for the movie. And so, I mean, you talk about going the distance. You know, they did the filming in Washington state to represent North Korea. So when they're flying over snowy mountains, reenacting the crash site and the Yalu Bridge attack, that all happened. It happened in Washington during January. And the rest of the scenes were filmed in Georgia. And it doubled for the Rhode Island coast. And so when they're flying out over the sea and using the beach, that is Cannes, France, Cannes. It also doubles as Rhode Island. And it's kind of the, the home port for the movie. Um, but there's a part in the movie where they're flying a Corsair down the Yalu River after or before attacking the bridge and CGI really does a disservice now because you think everything's CGI but when you see a Corsair they really flew this Corsair five feet above the river and it's just racing down there it's real and the Corsair is peeling off at altitude that's real and the Bearcats chasing each other those are real they could have used CGI airplanes instead they went the distance and they spent a fortune to do it and they gave our country a great gift. They gave the Marines a gift. They, they showed people the first glimpse of the Chosen Reservoir. I hope there's another movie about the Chosen Reservoir. It deserves its own movie. This was just a glimmer. But they brought this story back to life, and now it's on Paramount+. Plus. People are watching it, and the names of these guys will live on forever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the flying scenes are absolutely beautiful. I mean, I, I think I told you this in an email when, I was watching it with my husband and my son. Both of them are pilots. They both gave their stamp of approval on, on the flying scenes. But uh, we, my, my son has grown up going to air shows. And, you know, you always visit Warbird Alley where there are all kinds of, you know, you see a whole line of Corsairs, but none of them are painted the same way. It's like, you know, this is, this is Bill's Corsair. And, you know, this one might be painted in Marine Corps Squadron markings another one you know just a custom paint job and then right next to that is a p51 mustang which you know that would never exist in real life so the first thing he said to me is he said it's amazing to see all those corsairs painted in correct markings from one squadron like that is so beautiful to see that and and watch them sort of taxi out on screen. Um, it, it was gorgeous. It was really the flying part of it was beautiful. And th that was to me, one of those moments where I had to pinch myself when I watched the planes come up to Washington state, they started filming there and they just started painting the big white K on the tail, the symbol of the, that air group and the Leyte. And they actually painted them with this incredible, um, Hollywood paint that was like this dark Navy. And so I got to say to them, hey, guys, listen, all the air show planes are glossy and they're usually 
this kind of like vibrant shade of navy blue. And so the Korean warplanes were this kind of black navy, dark, matte paint, you know, and then make sure you put the big white numbers on the nose because that's what the Marines on the ground would look up at. And they'd be able to say two, two ten, you know, we need you to bring it, bring in your, uh, your strafing run on such and such hill. I said, you got to get all this stuff right. And they did. So when you're seeing these planes, this is, this may be a once in a lifetime thing that we ever see four Corsairs flying together in the same markings, but, um, it makes for a visceral experience and a powerful film and really proud of it. I'm just really proud that the, the Korean war got its day. Well, it's, it's so refreshing too, to hear an author speak so highly of the film and to have been included as much as you were in the creative process and in the development of it. You know, there's so many of these stories where you've got a really great book. Everyone's so excited to see the movie. It sort of, it has the same title, but the you know, the inner workings of the movie are very different than the book. And then you talk to the author and they're like, yeah, they basically told me to go hang out at craft services until it was over. Um, so, uh, and, but I, and I also think it speaks to the authenticity of the, of the movie and sort of how compelling the story is um, both on in pulp and uh, in, in, uh, in, in film. So, well, uh, you know, it's been so great, and you've been so generous with your time, Adam. Um, this has been awesome. Uh, I just, I guess, um, Nancy, unless you have anything else. No, I just want to know what's, can you tell us what's next for you? And then also we yeah. want to let our listeners know where they can find you, they where they can find your books, and um, where they can watch Devotion. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm 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 about to announce a new uh, World War II book. I'm going back to the European theater with aviation. It's it's going to be in the theme of um, a higher call. I, I was just this young author who grew up with his grandfather's stories, and and then I put out this book called A Higher Call about this German fighter ace who spared an American bomber, and these guys later on found each other, and the two pilots became best friends, enemies turned friends. And so that was that launched my career, and it's given me this incredible opportunity. But I really grew up on my grandfather's stories of World War II, and I grew up reading books about Tarawa and Peleliu, and and just it was just the, the idea of I'm this young guy at, growing up in the '90s, and when I would look at my friends next to me, none of them knew anything about World War II, and their eyes would glaze over. And then everything started to change. Saving Private Ryan comes out, and suddenly America starts to go through this awakening right before we lose that generation. And I think we need to keep that going. So that, that's my mission. I want to do as much as I can to honor my grandfather's generation. Um, my books, um, I have a, we have a small family business that helps pay the bills while I'm away writing. It's called Valor Studios. And so we sell all of our books there at Valor Studios. And... Uh, you know, you can get them there autographed by the actual heroes. So I've got my Marine book signed by Marine Corsair pilots. I've got, you know, just all kinds of really cool people I've worked with. I wrote a book about Sherman tanks in World War II. And so you can pick up any of them there. And then for anybody who wants to see Devotion, it is on Paramount+. Plus. It's free if you have the service. And, uh, you know, I encourage you to check it out. But if you want Tom Hudner, I've got... Tom Hunter's autograph on these books, which is really rare. 
So, you know, you can That's incredible. You can snag one of those at ValorStudios.com, and I think I think you'll thank yourself someday because this guy is going to go down in history as he belongs, as one of America's great military his, uh, heroes, and his friend Jesse Brown will will be right there with him. Well, I'm and I'm hoping that we can get you back on the podcast to talk about Voices of the Pacific because I think our listeners would really love to hear some of those Marine stories from you. So uh, maybe, maybe we can schedule that sometime in the future. Let's, let's do it, Nancy. I've, I've had a lot All of right. fun chatting with you guys and uh, awesome. let's talk about Island hopping next. Cause the combat yeah. stories in that book. Oh my gosh. They raised well, the hair on your arms. Well, and then it's, it's relevance to what we're doing today is uh, I mean, it's, it's almost a, a complete reflection, you know, every, nothing, nothing's, nothing ever goes away. Right. So um, we would love to get your take um, on, on that as well as we go into this next phase of uh, you know, great power competition. So, Adam, this has been a real pleasure. Um, and thank you so much for your generosity, your time and, and just bringing um, you bringing these stories to light and, and making sure that they don't die from the public consciousness. Vic, thank you so much for your time. Nancy, same to you. It's been great coming on Scuttlebutt. and. Uh... Thanks for giving me a voice. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for giving Tom and Jesse a voice. I really, really appreciate it. Looking forward to talking to you again soon. Let's do it. Bye. See you, guys. Take care. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.